0: Well, thank you, Kevin, and thank you for Danny and the praise team for leading us in worship of our great God. It is good to be with you all here this morning, and as Kevin mentioned, um, yeah, we uh, continue to have members who are missing with us this morning, whether it's through travel or uh, through sickness. Um, let's continue to keep uh, Pastor Mark and his family in prayer. Uh, they all were... Um, they got COVID this past week, and so they're recovering at home. And so, um, yeah, I have the privilege of uh, filling in uh, for him this morning. And um, so just to begin our time in the Word, I just wanted to uh, read a couple of quotes just to kind of tune our ears and our hearts to what we will be looking at this morning. Uh, Martin Luther, who is one of the great reformers, of our time once said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. J.C. Ryle in his book on prayer writes, prayer is the most important subject in practical religion. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the good doctor, says, prayer is the highest activity of the human soul. He goes on to explain that preaching is comparatively simple as compared with praying. For when one is preaching, he is speaking to men. But when a man prays, he is speaking to God. Given the significance of prayer in the Christian life, it is not surprising to find in the scriptures many great models and examples of prayer worth emulating. We think of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, which begins with these words, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We think of the Apostle Paul's prayers for the saints who belong to the first century church in Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, Corinth, and Thessalonica. In the Old Testament, there is Daniel's prayer of confession in Daniel chapter 9. Solomon's prayer for wisdom in 1 Kings chapter 3. You've probably also noticed that many of the Psalms are actual prayers. Prayers of thanksgiving, praise, supplication, confession, Repentance. And we will be actually taking a look at one of them this morning, written by a man of God. I believe God included and recorded these prayers in his word for our spiritual edification. And so as we consider our text for today, my hope is that it would inform the way we pray. And in the turn, the way we live in light of who God has revealed himself to be. So if you would, go ahead and turn with me to Psalm chapter 90. Psalm chapter 90. And for full disclosure, I preached on the same passage eight years ago when our church was still meeting at the Marriott in Santa Clara. But the message and truth it contains is timeless and just as relevant for our lives today. Psalm Chapter 90, if I can have my first slide. Notice that this psalm begins with a superscription. It reads, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. Now, it's helpful to point out that the superscription was not part of the original manuscript. It was most likely added after the writing of the psalm by the compiler of the Psalter. Nonetheless, we have no reason to doubt that Moses was the author of this particular psalm based on internal evidence that we find in our text. As far as we know, it is the only psalm attributed to Moses, and as such, it is considered the oldest of the 150 psalms in the Bible. While it's not explicitly stated, most commentators believe that this psalm was written during the Israelites' 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. If you recall, after God had miraculously delivered them from slavery in Egypt, the people were forbidden from entry into the promised land because of their disobedience. As a result, an entire generation, including Moses himself, would die in the wilderness. Still by the grace of god moses here in psalm chapter 90 and also in deuteronomy 33:1 is described as the man of god for despite his well documented shortcomings and failures moses was faithful to god and we see his godliness reflected not only in his life but also in this prayer recorded for us. So with this context in mind, let's begin reading Psalm 90, starting in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains are brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. From Psalm 90, we discover four attributes of God that ought to shape the way we pray and live our lives before Him. Four attributes of God that ought to shape the way we pray and live our lives before Him. And in particular, we will see that God is the eternal and sovereign judge to whom we must appeal for mercy in order to live our transient lives on earth, with wisdom, joy, and significance. And that is the authorial intent of our passage. So four attributes or characters of God that ought to shape the way we pray and live our lives today. And the first is the eternality of God. The eternality of God. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Many of us are familiar with this opening verse of Scripture. And perhaps you memorized it as a kid growing up, either in Sunday school or BBS, as I did. Now, whatever the occasion might be, I would suggest to you that this verse doesn't grip our hearts as it should. Instead of meditating on it with awe, worship of our eternal creator, we tend to gloss over these words as if we're reading a children's storybook. Once upon a time, there lived a God who created all things. The reality is that God, the eternal one, was self-existent long before the first act of creation, before he created the heavens and the earth, before even time began. Moses writes in verse 2 Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In his book, The Attributes of God, A.W. Pink helps describe God's eternal nature. And just listen as I read and try to imagine. What's going on here? There was a time, if time it could be called, when God in the unity of his nature, although subsisting equally in three divine persons, dwelt all alone. There was no heaven where his glory is now particularly manifested. There was no earth to engage his attention. There were no angels to him his praises, no universe to be upheld by the power, by the word of his power. There was nothing, no one but God, and that, not for a day, a year, or an age, but from everlasting, end quote. So, as finite beings, it's hard for us to grasp God's eternal nature. If you and I were to look back in time Our human minds can go no further than the beginning of creation. But we must be careful not to allow our comprehension to be the judge or measure of who God is, lest we confine him to our limited understanding. Instead, in his word, he has clearly revealed himself to us as the eternal God and creator. To say that he is eternal is to say that he is without beginning, Or end. He perfectly transcends all limitations of time. In fact, he was God before the beginning and before all ages. And just as he does not have a beginning, God has no end either. God exists unconfined and self satisfied, uncontained and self sufficient. Not just from everlasting, but to everlasting. He will exist eternally into the future, even after time expires, after heaven and earth pass away. He is truly the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, who was and is who is to come. No one else can lay claim to this attribute. C.S. Lewis illustrates it this way. If you were to imagine a sheet of paper that was infinitely extended in all directions, and if you took a pencil and made a line one inch long on it, that would be time. When you started to push your pencil, it was the beginning of time. And when you lifted off, the paper. It was the end of time. So that all of human history fit onto that one inch. And all around, infinitely extended in all directions, is God. Well, what does that mean for Moses and the people of God? In light of God's eternal nature, Moses writes in verse 1, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Put another way, Moses is saying, God, you are our home, our refuge, our hiding place. In proclaiming this truth, Moses is reflecting back not only on his personal life, but also on all the generations of God's people before him. If we return to the historical context, Israel had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Before that, they were slaves for many years in the land of Egypt. Before that, they lived amongst the Canaanites. Today, we live in a totally different era, place, and culture. Instead of the Sinai wilderness, we live in the Silicon Valley. Instead of pitched tents... Many of us rent or own a home in one of the most affluent parts of the world. But this timeless truth remains the same. For the people of God, our dwelling place is not in this world. It's God himself, the everlasting one. Charles Spurgeon writes, To the saints, the Lord Jehovah, the self-existent God, stands instead of mansion, and roof tree. He shelters, comforts, protects, preserves, and cherishes all his own. While we were still dating, my wife Becky once shared a story with me of how she was, when she was in high school, the apartment that she and her mom had been living in had burned to the ground. All their earthly possessions were gone, just like that. They ended up living out of a car for the next couple nights until an old friend learned about their situation and invited them to stay with her in her one-bedroom apartment. I also think of our Christian brothers and sisters in places like the Middle East and in churches around the world who are presently facing persecution. They have suffered not only the loss of their homes, but also the loss of their freedom, their family, and for some, their own life. But J.C. Ryle writes, You may rob him of life and liberty and money. You may take from him health and lands and house and friends. But do what you will. You cannot rob him of his home. What a great comfort to know that the eternal God is our dwelling place just as he has been in all generations to Abraham, Jacob, and Moses, to the prophets and the apostles, to all who belong to him today. Brothers and sisters, we must not fix our hope on the temporal things of this world, whether it's our careers, our 401k plans, our relationships, or our health. Sooner or later, those things will pass or be taken away from us. But as believers, our eternal hope and security is in an everlasting God. He is our dwelling place in all generations. Do you and I believe and pray and live in light of this reality? So Moses starts his prayer in verses 1 through 2 by affirming The eternality of God. From there, he goes on to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Starting in verse 3, we read You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. In contrast to God's eternal character, the frail and transitory nature of man is highlighted in this next section. Moses begins by taking us back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2, where God formed the first man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into him the breath of life. Only a few verses later, in chapter 3, things quickly fall apart as Adam and Eve disobey God's word by eating of the forbidden fruit. As a consequence of his sin, God tells Adam in Genesis 3.19 that he would ultimately return to the ground For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Sadly, that is the fate not only of Adam, but of every one of his descendants. At the end of our lives, God's sovereign decree to us will be, Return, O children of men. None of us will be able to resist his decreed will let alone bargain with him for more time. That is because, as we read in the next verse, in God's sight, a thousand years of human history are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. From our vantage point, a millennium is a really long time. A thousand years ago, there was no printed Bible. No telephones, no computers, no cars, no vaccines, no restaurants or universities. But to the everlasting God, it is as yesterday or as a passing in the middle of the night. In other words, our earthly life is as nothing from God's eternal perspective. To emphasize the brevity of human life, Moses uses three illustrations. Look with me there. Beginning at verse 5, you, God, sweep them away as with a flood. The imagery he uses here is that of a rapid and powerful flash flood. Now, that's not something that you and I are familiar with living here in California, but wandering for 40 years through the hot and dry regions of the Sinai wilderness, Moses might have been referring to what were the result of infrequent but heavy storms that dumped large amounts of water in a very short time. Because the soil in the desert is so poorly absorbent, runoffs would converge and form A flash flood in a matter of seconds, sweeping away anything in its path. Large boulders, uprooting, large, humongous trees. Like a flash flood, Moses says, human life is swept away in an instant. He goes on in verse 5 to liken our transient lives to a fleeting dream. Now, how many of us experience dreams when you sleep? Well, there are different types of dreams. One thing that's consistent about them is that they are often forgotten soon after we wake up from sleep. They quickly vanish from our memory. And in the same way, our lives are here one moment and gone the next, it's brief. It's fleeting and soon forgotten. Finally, Moses compares our earthly lives to the life cycle of grass, starting at the end of verse 5. In the morning, the grass is renewed and flourishes, but in the evening, it withers and fades. And as I look around the room this morning, most of us probably identify more closely with the description of grass in the morning. In the stage of life that you are in, you feel renewed and full of energy, vigor, passion, and strength. But we must constantly remember what is soon to come. Our lives will fade, and it will wither like the grass, every one of us. What is the point that Moses is making in all of this? Is that God is sovereign over the number of our days. Who is he that turns man back into dust? Verse 3. Who is he that sweeps us away like a flood? Verse 5. God has determined the length of our years. He controls the end of our life. And he decides when and how we leave this earth. We ought to keep this sobering reality in mind as we find ourselves two and a half years into a global pandemic. Despite the varying opinions on masks, immunizations, testing, lockdowns, and quarantine measures, the fact of the matter is that COVID has claimed the lives of millions of people around the world. Many more have died from wars, mass shootings, and suicides. This past year, like grass that flourishes and is renewed in the morning, in the evening it fades and withers. So is our life under the sovereign control of God. And to ignore or forget this truth is folly. Instead, we ought to acknowledge the sovereignty of God both in life and in death. This takes us to our third point. Not only should we acknowledge the eternality of God and affirm the sovereignty of God, we ought to also apprehend the wrath of God. Famous Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw once made this astute observation. The statistics on death Are quite impressive. One out of one people die. That's consistent with everything we have said up to this point. Yet, in openly denying the existence of God, Shaw, who is an atheist, fails to recognize God's holy wrath against our sin, instead, attributing our death to natural processes and causes. Here in verses 7 through 11, Moses reminds us of the true explanation for the brevity of our lives. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. Verse 7. For all our days pass away under your wrath. Verse 9. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Verse 11. The ultimate cause of our physical death is not a virus, a cancer, or a heart attack, but rather God's all-consuming anger. No one can escape the reality that our lives are cut short by God's wrath. Even for those of us who are in Christ, this should humble us daily. For verse 8 reveals the reason for God's fury. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Here, Moses acknowledges that God, rather than ignoring or overlooking our sins, sets them before him, even those sins that may be concealed, private, or hidden from other people are plain and visible to God. For no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 4.13 It is folly to think that our sins will ever escape the gaze of our omniscient creator and judge. Verse 9 we read, For all, Our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. What an accurate depiction of our lives. Most of us will live for 70, maybe 80 years, some a few more, some a few less. But it is nothing compared to eternity. And from the day we are born until the day we die, our lives are filled with trouble, toil, and tragedy. As Solomon describes the span of our life in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all His vanity. Moses closes this section with a question. Look with me at verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Notice that he doesn't give us an answer. The question is rhetorical because the answer is obvious. Who considers the power of your anger? Not one of us in this room adequately regards the wrath of God. Who considers your wrath according to the fear of you? Not one of us in this room takes God too seriously. In our minds and in our lives, we tend to minimize God's wrath and diminish the power of His anger. We underestimate His fury And we do not fear him as we should. During the great awakening of the mid-18th century, Jonathan Edwards once preached a famous sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And just listen to Edwards as he vividly describes the wrath of God. Quote, The God that holds you over the pit of hell Much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of pure eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times so abominable in his sight as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning but that God's hand has held you up. O sinner, consider the dreadful danger you are in. Tis a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath, that you are held over in the hand of that God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. End quote. Upon hearing this, some of us might think that Edwards is over exaggerating God's anger and wrath, that he's simply trying to scare people out of hell. His sermon would certainly not go over well in our contemporary postmodern society. But I would suggest to you that rather than being too harsh or dramatic, Edwards' description still falls short. Of the reality of God's wrath that is provoked against our sin. The writer of Hebrew warns us that it is a fearful thing, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we would do well to contemplate God's holy and righteous anger. If you are listening this morning and you are not a Christian, Know that according to his word, you are guilty of offending a holy God like the rest of mankind. Not only that, you are helpless to save yourself. John 3.36 states unequivocally that because of your sins, the wrath of God remains on you. You might think that you're doing just fine, but there is a divine judgment to come. Death is not the end. For Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. And his judgment will be righteous, swift, and merciless. Your only hope is to believe in his son Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for the sins of all who would place their faith in him. He died so that your sins might be forgiven and so that you might no longer live for yourself, but for him who died and rose again. While it is still today, will you repent, submit, and confess Christ, a Savior and Lord of your life? Well, what if you are a Christian? Is it still necessary to meditate on the wrath of God as Moses does in his prayer. Doesn't the Bible teach us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Well, this is where some of us can misapply the gospel in our lives. We assume that because we have been saved, God is no longer angry with our sin. But nothing can be further from the truth. His holy anger burns and is provoked by every evil word, every selfish deed, and every prideful thought. It is only because Christ took our place on the cross as the object of divine wrath that we need not fear His judgment. Our Savior absorbed, turned away, and shielded us from the punishment You and I deserve for our sins. And truly, as we have sung many times before, on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was fully satisfied. It is only to the extent that we reflect upon His divine wrath that we will grow in our understanding and our appreciation for His boundless mercy. So then, The wrath of God is a divine perfection upon which Christians, of all people, need to frequently meditate. Not because we are still under his judgment, but that our hearts might be stirred to humbleness, gratitude, and praise of the one who rescued us from his own wrath. Meditation on God's righteous wrath should impact the way we live, serve, and worship Him. Not in slavish fear, but in reverence and holiness. In our sanctification and pursuit of holiness, we need to be reminded of God's anger against sin so that we too would hate and resist it. And as we see here with Moses, meditating on the wrath of God, should humble us and drive us to our knees in prayer for ourselves and for those around us. So then, do we live and pray in light of His holy wrath. Well, this brings us to our fourth and final point for this morning. We must not only acknowledge the eternality of God, affirm the sovereignty of God, apprehend the wrath of God. But we must also appeal to the mercy of God. As we come to this final section of Moses' prayer, he connects it to the previous section we looked at with the Hebrew conjunction Ken, translated so in verse 12. So then, or therefore, In light of who God is and in light of the brevity of our lives, what should be our proper response? Here's where Moses transitions in his prayer from meditation to petition, from the indicatives of who God is to the imperatives, what he prays for in response to God's revealed character. And he begins by asking God to teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days. The implication here is that naturally we cannot and will not number our days. Left to ourselves, we would not consider the transience of our life or make the most of the opportunity afforded to us. None of us are inherently gifted Inclined, educated, or accomplished to figure it out on our own. We need God to instruct us, to assign proper value and priority to the time we have been given and to use it diligently. That is because a heart applied to wisdom does not come from self-searching or head knowledge. It comes from fearing the Lord, recognizing that He is the eternal and sovereign judge of all. According to the book of Proverbs, that is the beginning of true wisdom, which comes from applying truth that has been revealed to us in his word. Thus, Moses pleads with God, teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Otherwise, he suggests, we will present to him a heart of foolishness. We will linger, procrastinate, misspend our time, invest in temporal things, and end up squandering our life. Moses continues in verse 13, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Imagine yourself for a moment in Moses' sandals, Watching men and women die off one by one in the wilderness. Remember that the entire generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt, aged 20 years old and upward, died in the wilderness, except for Joshua and Caleb. And biblical scholars estimate anywhere from 600,000 to several million people. That's one massive gravesite. It's no surprise Moses would plead with God to return his divine presence, favor, and blessing on his people. Though the Israelites deserve the discipline that had been handed to them for their disobedience, Moses begs for mercy on their behalf. Have pity on your servants." Specifically in the midst of their affliction, Moses asks God to restore the people's joy and gladness in Him. Verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. While life is short, and full of trouble, and death is sure to come. Moses realizes that it is possible, not only to live wisely, as we previously saw, but also to live joyfully all of our earthly days. But true contentment and lasting significance can only be found in the presence of favor of God Himself, not in our circumstances, our possessions, our ministries, or our relationships. As a church family, we've recently dealt with health issues amongst our members. Death of family, friends, and loved ones. Real challenges and difficulty in the home and in the workplace. In the midst of these trials in our lives, and in the midst of our evil in our days, We ought to remember this truth and guard our hearts against temptation that God alone can satisfy and make us glad in Him. As He recognizes that His days are numbered, Moses continues to plead to God for His glorious power and work to be made manifest to His people. Verse 16 Let your work be shown to your servants. And your glorious power to their children. Notice here that Moses looks beyond his own life and appeals on behalf of future generations as they would be the ones to enter into the promised land. God, not only to us, but to our children, let your glory and power be revealed. Brothers and sisters, is that your desire and mine as well? As we consider the world around us and the affliction in our lives, do we long to see God's greatness and glory passed on to the next generation? To see the church shine and his kingdom grow long after we are in our graves. Whether you have children or not, Rightly understanding God's eternality, His sovereignty, and His wrath should drive us to pray, not just for ourselves, but also for the little ones who are sitting in the pews next to us, and for those who would come after them, that His power would be shown and His mercy extended to generations beyond ours. And finally, In verse 17, Moses pleads one more time for God's favor to rest upon them. And specifically, that God would bring success and significance to their work. Moses prays, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses appeals again to God's mercy. Not only that they might receive wisdom, verse 12. Not only that they would experience true joy and gladness in him, verse 14 and 15. But also that there would be lasting significance in their work, here in verse 17. He acknowledges that unless the Lord builds the house, they who build it labor in vain, And he repeats for emphasis, Yes, Lord, establish the work of our hands. As we close our time in his word, we considered from Psalm 90 a prayer of Moses four attributes of God that ought to shape the way we pray and live our lives before him. The question that each of us needs to start with is do you know this eternal sovereign God of holy wrath and mercy? I'm not asking whether you know it about him or his character, but whether you have a saving and growing relationship with him through Jesus Christ, his son. For while the meaning of this text has not changed in over 3,000 years since Moses wrote them down, The way we apply it to our lives today is different because of Christ's life, His death, and His resurrection. God is still the eternal and sovereign judge of all to whom you and I must appeal for mercy to live our earthly lives with godly wisdom, unshakable joy, and lasting significance. But our appeal is made through a merciful and faithful high priest who bore our sins and took our place on the cross, the sinless one for sinners. And there at the cross, we find the greatest display of God's wrath and mercy. And there we find hope to live each moment of our earthly days, trusting in our eternal God, who is our true dwelling place. While evil surrounds us and affliction besets us, through Christ, we are invited to approach His throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As we cling to the promise of His Word and the hope of eternal life, we are then free in this life to always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil in the Lord is not in vain. So then, brothers and sisters, in light of His eternality, His sovereignty, and His wrath, let us draw near to the God of all mercy through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Word to us this morning. How necessary for us to hear it and be reminded of these truths that you are our eternal God, our sovereign King, a God of wrath, of holiness, but also a God of boundless mercy. Thank you that you are such a God and that you would choose to reveal yourself to us through Christ. Help us to renew our faith in Him, trust Him, obey Him, walk with Him through the challenges and difficulties that we face in our personal lives, as well as through the times that you have led us and continue to lead us as a church. May we do it out of humbleness, gratitude, and love for you. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, uh, Ted, for bringing us that sermon and just reminding us of just the different attributes of of God that uh, really should encourage us us in our uh, walk through this life and Um, The next song we're going to sing as a response is Christ, our hope in life and death. And I think um, that's just uh, such an appropriate song um, in light of what we heard, that Christ uh, is our only hope um, in life and death. And uh, this song is taken from uh, the first catechism.